Hello and welcome to the LifeGate Free Will Baptist Podcast. We are so glad you could join us today. Our aim is to connect with others and share the good news of the gospel, that God loves us, that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, and that anyone can have eternal life through trusting in him alone. Now, let's join Pastor Jason for today's message. This morning we're going to be in the book of Titus this morning, and we've been there the last couple of weeks, and I know we had to miss some Sundays uh, for snow and for COVID and all kinds of other stuff, so it's, it's really been about a month uh, since we started it, but we haven't been in it that long, that many sermons in it, but uh, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2 this morning. If you go uh, through your New Testament, you'll find 1st, 2nd Timothy, and then you'll bump into Titus. If you get to the book of Hebrews, you've went too far, you need to go back. And so uh, it's nothing wrong, no shame at all, looking in the front of your Bible and finding your uh, table of contents and finding the exact spot you need to be and the exact page you need to be on. And so uh, I'd rather you do that and be where you're supposed to be and then uh, just kind of fumbling through half the service like I've done before and uh, not being able to find the right book. But uh, we appreciate you being with us today. I want to speak to you on the subject this morning of having a faith worth following. Having a faith worth following. Now, there's a lot of stuff out there today about faith and about different churches and having some kind of a spiritual experience or whatever. And uh, some stuff you need to follow, some stuff you don't need to follow. And uh, Timothy, I mean, I'm sorry, Titus uh, has been instructed by Paul. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written the book we have before us today called Titus. And uh, we went through some of the background about that. Titus is a young pastor going to um, set up. Uh, shop, as it were, for the churches that had been started in the island of Crete. And uh, they had uh, a bunch of different other religions going on there, and that stuff had crept into the church. We looked at some of the stuff last week about some extra stuff they were adding to salvation. And Paul um, reiterates that salvation is pretty simple, the, the stuff they were adding to it. We looked at that at the last part of chapter 1. And so today we're going to look at some of the things. If you look at chapter 1, Paul points out some things that were being added to the gospel of Christ. They were adding circumcision. They were adding this, that, and the other, all kinds of rituals and stuff you had to do on top of accepting Christ as their Savior. And uh, that is all that is false doctrine. Uh, it's Christ alone, faith alone through Christ alone, and that he alone saves your soul. And there's nothing we necessarily do other than having faith in him, what Jesus has already done. And so in chapter 2, you can picture it with me if you've ever been down uh, like a path. And uh, I was thinking like a, if you ever drove around one of these big lakes, and all of us have probably been there. When you go around the side of the lake, you get towards the dam part, you know, where they build it up like that. And you have water on one side, and on the other side, it's just a ravine. It goes off to wherever the water lets out at. And as you go across that road, or even a path, if you're at a pond or something, you know, it's, it's got a flat area where you walk across, maybe, you know, whatever, how wide it is. And then if you go off one side, you go out in the water. If you go off the other side, you go off in the ravine, you know, wherever the, 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 the river or the creek lets the water out. And so uh, the gospel it's kind of like that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is straight and narrow ways right in the middle. And if you add anything to the gospel, you go off in the water. If you take away anything from the gospel, that's what we're going to look at today, you go off in the ravine the other way. So there's a balance there. The way that we keep the proper balance is we have to go what's in black and white in the Word of God, and that's how we stay balanced. But we're going to look at this morning a faith worth following. Now, we've you can find 
different religions today that do add stuff to the gospel of Christ, just gospel plus this or Jesus plus that or some other book that somebody will come up with some other name. We're not going to get into a lot of that stuff today. But this morning I want us to be able to speak and to look at having faith worth following. And uh, we're going to be uh, almost more of a teaching sermon than it is a preaching sermon. But the, I want us to be able to understand the text and look through probably the first half of the sermon is going to be looking through the text. And then I'll give you several points that God has dealt with me about as far as uh, application today. But Paul was addressing these things that have been added to in first chapter 1, chapter 2, is those things that, that they're just not living up to the gospel. They're just not doing everything that they need to be doing. You know, they're... The gospel is free. God saves you just like you are. God saves you right where you are. But God never leaves you the way you are. When you get saved, God will begin to change you to be more like him. Um, the Bible says the washing of the, of the water by the word. What that means is as you read the word of God, as you pray, as you read the God, word of God every day, maybe a little bit every day, maybe a lot every day, but as I read this, I start to take it into my heart and my life, into who I am, and God begins to wash over me like a, a, a wash of water, as it were, to wash off dirt or whatever it is, and the word of God begins to wash over my life, and things begin to change. Um, some things change gradually. Some things change right away. When I got saved, my vocabulary changed overnight. You know, there were no sacred words to me before I got saved. Um, you know, I, I, to my own, you know, regret, I, I have taken the Lord's name in vain. I said all kinds of stuff I shouldn't have said. But when I got saved, my vocabulary changed that quick. I knew that I knew that I was talking about the God of heaven, and I no longer would use that word that way. And you reverence God's name. You don't use God's name that way. And, uh, God, and other things, it takes a while, you know, whether it's whatever it is. But Paul is laying out for some things in Timothy to look for. And this really, you could sum this whole book of Titus up and the prescription for a healthy church. In fact, I want you to see that here in the very first uh, verse. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And uh, he's getting ready to say these things that I'm going to say are going to be sound doctrine. And sound doctrine, the word sound there I talked about last week is, is kind of foundational. It doesn't move. It's something that's rock solid, something you can go back to, something that, that's reliable that you can stand on. It also means, uh, the word sound also means to have, um, uh, means whole or complete. It means to, to have the full array, array of it. It means to be healthy. It means to be full. It means to be healthy and complete. And if I'm sound, I'm, I'm healthy enough to run or whatever. If I'm sound for the race, it means I'm, I'm ready to run. I'm trained. I'm healthy. I'm ready to go. And that's what he's talking about here in the Christian life. These are going to be the sound doctrine. We see, look, this sound doctrine is mentioned a couple of different times through here. You'll see it, uh, sound speech in verse 8. And we've seen it a couple of times last week in the other chapter, but uh, chapter 1. But it says, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, Grave, that, that might mistake that for grave, that's not, that may be the case if you're an aged man, but uh, it's not talking about grave, it's talking about grave. Grave means to be dignified in the way you act and the way you live, to be tempered, to be uh, sober-minded, to be sound in faith, to be solid in faith, to be healthy in faith, to be where you're supposed to be in faith in Jesus Christ, and also in charity, in love, in patience. And uh, well, we could all use some, uh, some of all three of those, I'm sure. 
And he goes on, verse number three again. This is talking to aged men. He says, these are the kind of people you need to set up in your church. So this is the kind of, uh, of the stair step that needs to go on in your church. In fact, he, he gives a good prescription here that the elders, uh, elderly people, and I'll mention seniors or elderly people, whatever, throughout the sermon, but the elderly people are to teach those that are younger. Now, you, if you're an elderly person, that doesn't mean that you go up to somebody young in the church and grab them by the ear and say, hey, look, boy, you're going to listen to me and do this. It's, it's not that way at all. It's not that you're better than them or you're closer to God than them, although you may be closer to God than them. That's not something that you would do. And he goes on and says, these are the kind of people that you want to set up in your church to have a healthy church, that they need to be sound or healthy in faith and charity and peace. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becomes holiness. They need to be reverent towards God in the way that they live. Now, this is not just talking about the women in verse number 3 because he wants you to see the word likewise, the aged women likewise. So all the stuff that was just said about the men also applies to the women. It says that aged men be sober, be grave, and we'll get to the word sober here in a minute. We're going to look at a couple of, of things that people get hung up on. But aged women likewise, that they are in behavior as become the saints. Not false accusers. Means, in other words, they don't gossip. They don't blab their mouth about all kinds of stuff. Not the men can't do that, but men can do it too. I know some men that are just as big a gospel as anybody I know that's a woman. Not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Now, I want you to see that phrase there, not given to much wine. That kind of leaves open the invitation that we can say, well, that means we can have a little wine then, right? Is that what that means? Well, I want you to think about this. In other, if you apply something in Scripture... It's not going to say one thing in one part of the Scripture and something else in somewhere else in the Scripture. So if we put all the Scripture together is how you have to, that, <coughs> excuse me, Scripture interpret Scripture. But I want you to think about it just out of this passage. He tells them to be sober in verse number 2. That also applies to the women. And if you were to look at the, the parallel passage for this is 1 Timothy 3, I believe verse 11. It tells the women there in particular to be sober and, uh, as well. And that's not just sober-minded. But I want you to think about this for a second. If you can have a little bit of it, say if, and this goes for, if you, why do people drink? Let me just, well, I know we're chasing a rabbit a little bit here this morning, but why do people drink? Let me go a little further. Why do people, marijuana's getting ready to be legalized, eventually it'll be legalized everywhere, but why do people want to get high? Why do people want the fix of, of snorting or shooting up or why do people want that? Well, I would submit it is to cover up something else. It's to get a particular feeling or it's to cover up something that's, that's, it alters your reality of where you are, maybe temporarily. And in the book of Proverbs, it even tells us that, that, you know, strong drink is for the person that's dying. I mean, it would be like somebody on hospice care giving them morphine. Well, morphine's bad for your, your liver or whatever. Well, if you're on hospice, you really don't care about your liver. You know, if, you know, you keep them comfortable. And so what does it mean? When somebody says that, that they're given, well, the, the people at Crete, and evidently the women at Crete, uh, in particular here, and the men, men as well, now they were not exempt, but they were given to getting snorkered all the time. That was something they did. That's something they were known for. That's something he addresses here, that they should not be in a state where they can't comprehend things, and it alters the way they think. The, way, the reason people do the things that they do is to get them out of the ordinary where they are to temporarily, as it were, suspend where they are and give them a different feeling or a different view or a different look on life. And I would submit to you, if a little bit of poison is bad, all of the poison is bad. 
And if you take this very passage here, you say, well, what about these people that are alcoholics? You know, in my personal stance, I believe that God is teaching or teaches from the Bible complete abstinence from alcohol. I don't believe God, you don't believe we should mess with any of it. And I know somebody can make the argument where you can do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and let me just give you a for instance. If somebody is a, 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 somebody that's been saved out of an alcoholic background, do you think it's a good idea for them to go sip on a wine somewhere at, at the Olive Garden or, or whatever? Now, I know I'm just being very practical this morning. I'm just asking you questions. Would that be a good idea? Absolutely not. Let me go a little bit further here in a different direction. A man has gotten saved. He used to be in a pornographic lifestyle, or, or you can go as far as you want with that. They have, you know, street people or whatever, whatever he was into. He went to the clubs or whatever. He got saved out of that. Do you think it would be an excellent idea if he went down to the supermarket and got him a great big subscription? I guess they still have this. Um, uh, Sportsman's Illustrated. Do you think it would be a good idea? Well, they're not naked. I mean, they're really not. They got something on. You know, a little bit maybe, but they got something on. So we can apply that same principle to here. Would it be good for somebody to get into a little bit of sin just as long as you don't go too far? No, not at all. And I believe what Paul was getting across to Timothy here, these people have a problem with this particular sin of alcohol. They have particularly with wine, and they have this sin, and they don't need to be given to that stuff. They don't need to be controlled by that stuff. They don't need to be around that stuff. They need to be, uh, let me see, where am I at? Verse number three, uh, teachers of good things. You say, well, I thought women weren't supposed to teach in the church. Well, women can teach in the church. Uh, there are some women's studies, some women that have women's ministries. Now, I don't. we saw this last week, the qualifications of a pastor, uh, to be a husband or one wife, that's kind of hard for a woman to do. But anyway, they can teach other women. Some, we've had Sunday schools where we broke up, and, and uh, we have a, a women teaching the women and a man, man teaching the men. And uh, that is very helpful. It is, God has given wonderful gifts to women. And some of the best teachers I can remember having or remember seeing in, any, in other churches I've been in are women that are teaching Sunday school. They teach kids, just, they just get it. They click with them. God's given them a special connection with kids. And, and for other reasons, we don't have women in the nursery and stuff anyway. I mean, I'm sorry, men in the, in the nursery and stuff anyway. So women are doing it. So women do have a very vital role in the church. and had a very vital role in the first church. And these churches at Crete, they were... Pick out women that are able to teach, that they may be teach the younger women. Look at verse 4 with me. That they may teach the younger women to be sober. There's the word sober again. To love their husbands and to love their children. Do women need to be taught to love their husbands? The Bible says so. The Bible also says for men, he, 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 in trying to think of the book, it skips my mind right now. But in the New Testament, God does tell men to love their wives. It's a, it's a choice. I want to get something across to you this morning that love, in fact, is a choice. You see, when, feelings go with it. Don't, 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 don't cut me off. Feelings do go along with that. But you can't go on feelings alone. Now, if you say, well, I choose to love this person, there's going to be feelings there. In fact, if there's no feeling there, you shouldn't do it. But you can't go by feelings alone. There's a choice when you make a, a decision at the altar to, to marry somebody that I, I say I do till death do us part for better or for worse. I make a choice in that moment before God. I promise God that I'm going to stay married to this woman even if things don't work out. You know, we argue about some things and sometimes we don't get along. I'm going to make a choice to love her. It's a choice we make. And he says for the older women to be able to teach the younger women how to be sober, to love their husbands. There are some days he's not going to be very lovable. 
There are some days I don't love me. There are some days I don't want to hang around with me. So I'm sure that rubs off on somebody else, especially my wife. Can I get a witness? Amen. And if you, some of the old women need to talk to some of the women that have only been married a couple of years and say, honey, I've been married 50 years. And let me tell you, it gets better because he loses his hearing. He can't hear you no more. No, it's a, you, you, get, you learn to get along. And you have to learn to love your husband. And yeah, he's going to have some qualities about him you're not going to like. Surprise, you got some qualities about you he don't like. And you begin to learn each other. And the younger women need to be taught by the older women, this is how you handle these things. You stay faithful to God. You stay faithful to your husband. And God will honor you in this. They need to be taught that. My friend, if you're here this morning, you have gray hair, and you're one of our age saints or senior saints or whatever you want to call you, we need your help. We need you. There was a, a church in the United States that I believe it was north of here that they had they were going to restart their church. They gotten down, had some old elderly people there and some senior saints or whatever you want to call them. And uh, the pastor said, "We're going to close the church." And so they closed the church, and then they they closed the doors, did a remodel, and they opened back up, new name, you know, fresh start or whatever. And they opened up, but they they had a, a catalyst with it. All the elderly people in the church, he said, "I don't want you to come. You're no longer welcome here. I don't want you to come back to our church." For, he said a timetable was like two years or a year or something. He said, after the two years, after we got established or whatever, you can start to come back on Sunday morning, but you can't do anything. And what he was doing was he wanted a young church. He wanted a younger church. And that's very popular. We're after the young people. You were all about the young people. I can tell you, friend, that's fine. If you, and we want young people here. We love to have the nursery full, the, the junior church full, the teen church full, whatever's full. We want all that stuff full. But it's not to the detriment or the loss of older people. We need your help. He was telling Titus, Titus, when you start these churches, you sit elders up in the churches and you pick some men of God that have walked with God throughout the years. You pick some women of God that have walked with God through good and through bad and through ugly or whatever. And you take those older people and you couple them or, or, or put them with some of the younger women. You take some of the older men and put them with the younger men. One of the most blessed things you can do this morning, if you're uh, somebody that's listening to me and you're, you're a younger, a married couple or whatever, the best thing you can do is take one of these older couples out that have been married and may have lived for the Lord for years. Just take them out to lunch and just pick their brain about everything. There's a couple different ways of learning. One of those ways of learning is by institutions. We do that all the time. You know, I'm not against education at all, but one of the other ways of learning is by experience, and they have a whole lot more of that than you do. And God shows them things, and he's saying here to, to uh, Timothy, pick out some older couples and, and put them in charge of some things and let people see them and, and let the older women teach the younger women and the younger men, older men teach the younger men. And he goes on and gives a list here. He said to love their husbands, to love their children. We were increasingly in the days, you know, I used to think, well, uh, any woman would love her child, you know. She carries it for nine months. She, she has the child. You've seen the pictures I have too. I've experienced it firsthand with my wife, and they, they give the child to the mother right after the, the, the child is born. In our case, it was a C-section, so she was, you know, she was half loopy anyway, but, you know, they have her so much stuff. But she loves that child. You don't have to teach them that usually. But we live in a day and age right now that you do have to teach them that, and they had to teach them that back then. It's not automatic. People give their, the women give their children up all the time. We hear of all kinds of gross stuff that goes on. That's not a high percentage in the, in the population, but it does happen. I want you to think about something here for a second. 
you know, being pro-life, we, we fuss over the legislation. They're, 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 they're passing this is going to, you know, increase more abortions. And, and, and I'm, I get upset at that too. I get really upset. But do you realize if every woman in America, especially in the churches, were taught to love their kids, that a, the abortion industry will go out of business overnight, literally overnight? If a woman, when she got pregnant, realized that this is a child, this is a, a child that half of my DNA is in this child I'm carrying inside of me, and I, I, ought, I love that child. I ought to love that child. Sometimes it has to be taught. He says to teach them, they go in verse 5, to be discreet, to be chaste. It means to have character, to keep yourself. And it also says there, the next say, phrase is keepers at home. That does not mean that the wife cannot work outside of the home. That does not mean the wife can't have her own career. What it does mean is that they are the ones that keep the home together. The woman, the wife, is the, the mother is the, one, the glue that holds the home together. And without that glue, the, the, the father, you have stu- inclinations that God has given you that the man just, you don't have a clue about. I see it all the time in our own relationship. I can go somewhere with the kids. I, I don't, especially when they were small kids that had diapers. I would take them in the, in the car seat. I just, you know, I make sure I remembered the kid at least. But I would forget the diaper bag. I would forget the bottles. I would forget the diapers. I would be in bad shape in about two hours. I'd be in bad shape without my, my wife there somewhere or coming to meet me or something because I didn't think about any of that stuff. But the mother does. And God uses the mother in so many different ways. That's just a simple example. But so many other ways for us to be able to get uh, the home together the way it needs to be. Let me go on here quickly. Keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Again, that's not talking about browbeating them. But would it, let me read the rest of that verse before I explain what that means. That the word of God be not blasphemed. Why did God put that in there? First of all, he's talking to, to, to Christians. When he says the husband, I mean the wife is supposed to be obedient to the husband, does that mean that she is the slave and he is the master? No, it doesn't. What that means is he has a, a standard of God that he's living by, and when he goes out in public, if his wife is living by a different standard than he's living by, it is blaspheming God. You may have heard it said, I, let me just use an example. You know, some deacons in the church and his wife, you know, uh, out at the local restaurant, yeah, he, he, here comes so, brother so-and-so, you know, brother so-and-so, he's a deacon in that church, apparently his wife is the biggest gossip in town. If they really had it, you know, if God really had them, that wouldn't be happening. Who's being blasphemed there? God. You know, remember David, when he, he sinned with Bathsheba? And, and you know, he, he, he did all kinds of bad stuff. He, he slept with this woman that was already married. He tried to get her husband killed in battle, you know, and he, he did get his husband killed. He was guilty of murder. And when Nathan come to him and, and convicted him, and God said, you have given the enemies of God great occasion to blaspheme. They were blaspheming God because something David did. That's what it's talking about here. The wife and the husband has to be on the same page. They have to have the same convictions, the same standards. And they're both living for God. They need to have that kind of relationship with the public. Verse number six. Young, I know I'm going on long here. Let me go on quickly. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Be clear thinking. How many of you ever done something really dumb in your teen years? Now, I know Serena's in here. She's raising her hand. I'm sorry, Serena. I didn't put you on the spot. But I'll go ahead and raise my I did a lot of dumb stuff. Did anybody do anything dumb in their 20s in here? How many people do you know that got married in their 20s or even their teens? Do you think they needed some help? Absolutely. 
I wish somebody would have set me down. Of course, they didn't know that unless they could read my mind or whatever, but I needed my parents' help, first of all, and some people that knew God and some people that would direct me in the right direction. That's what it's talking about here. To be sober-minded. Teach the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. I circled that word pattern in my New Testament here. That is a key word, pattern of good works. You don't get good works to, to prove that you're saved. You can't do things to, to, to get to heaven. He's talking about here that the good works are evidence that you're already saved, that I'm saved, I'm born again. I do these things not to get saved, but because I already am saved. Let me go on quickly here. A pattern of good works and doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity. I put the word real beside that in my Bible. God wants to see somebody that's real. Your relationship with God's real. It has a real effect on your life, and it changes the way you live, and you, the end result is you're real. Verse number 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say against you. That means being above reproach. That, I'm, talking, I'm thinking about the person Daniel in the Old Testament. Remember when they wanted to throw Daniel in the lion's den? They said, well, we can't do anything to Daniel. They tried to find some dirt on Daniel, and they couldn't find any dirt on Daniel. They said, we, he's impeccable. His character is great. He, he does his job like he's supposed to. He's not cheating on the king. We can't find anything wrong with Daniel except for his God. And that's what they, they made that decree. That you had to worship somebody else besides God, and Daniel, he didn't care. He worshiped God anyway. But that's where... That's what makes me think of here. We need to live in such a way that somebody can accuse you or something and throw mud at you or whatever, and people know your character. No, that's not him. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not back-talking all the time. If you're an employer, if you, I, I say all the time, Christians should be the best employers in the world. Don't be back-talking all the time. Unless it's something sinful, don't, do your job like you're supposed to do. If your job requires you to sin, get another job. Not uh, prolonging, uh, but showing all fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Your employer ought to be able to look at you and know that you're not going to steal something from the company. Know that you're not going to slip something in your pocket before you go out. You don't have to go through the metal detector before you leave because you you got sticky fingers. Now, you may have had sticky fingers before you got saved. The Bible says, he that stole it and steal no more. You don't have sticky fingers now, and you ought to represent who God is. No matter where you are, you are a representation of who God is. Verse number uh, 11. For grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching them, um, denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for the blessed, looking for the blessed hope. That's, the word hope is mentioned in all three chapters. Here it is in this chapter. The word hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us in, in all iniquity and, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. There we see good works again. I don't have time to explain that. And these things spake and exhort, rebuke all with all authority. Let no man despise you. I mean, the couple minutes I have left this morning, I want to speak to you just three quick, real quick points, and I promise you they'll be quick, about people that are elders in the church or elderly people in the church that have walked with God, somebody that has some seniority as far as being a Christian for a while, somebody that's been saved 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40 years. And let me just point out a couple of things why we need you in our church. First of all, they have wisdom by experience. I mentioned a while ago there's a couple different ways to get uh, wisdom or get knowledge. 
But wisdom is, in fact, going through something and having the experience that you've been through it. And wisdom is being able to apply it to your life and being able to show other people how it applies to their life. We need your advice. We need your example. We need you to be the people, men and women of God that God has called you to be. And I think that's one of the reasons that we have so many weak churches across America today because the young people, we aren't looking to the old people and the old people aren't stepping up to be what they need to be in the Lord. There is no reason that an elderly person that has been uh, in the Lord, in the faith, somebody that's been saved for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, or struggling with the exact same sins of somebody that just come in off the street that's only been saved a, a year or two, or somebody that's not even saved at all. There should be no reason that you should not be matured beyond that, that we can look to you and say, hey, I want to pair you with so-and-so. I want you to go out. With, with the church will pay for it. You can go out and eat with him once a week and just, just soak up all he'll give you. I would love to be able to start that ministry, wouldn't you? Some are old, old elderly people thinking, yeah, me too. If he'd buy lunch every week, that'd be awesome. But it would be a worthy investment, would it not? Let me give you a, a little bit of an investment strategy. Here, he's telling Titus to look. Look for people that are maturing in the faith. I'm not a big investor. I don't really know much about investing. I don't know. Normally, I don't have any money to invest. But let me just give you a quick example. There are people that are called day traders. They get on these, I guess, these websites or, you know, I could mention a couple of sites or whatever. But they get somewhere where they, they literally trade by day. They buy a stock that morning. They watch the stock. They sell it that night. They call day traders. And I guess they ride the wave, I guess. I don't know what to do. But it's very short term. You know, you buy something for 10 bucks, By the end of the day, it goes up to 25 you sell it. And they do that the next day with some other stock. They pick all these different stocks. They're day traders. They're doing something for a very short-term gain. Now, they can gain, I guess. And, you know, they say it's pretty volatile where it can go up and down. You can lose a lot that way, too. But anyway, you'll only lose one day. So, anyway. And then there are other people that are called uh, short-term investments. They make short-term investments. You know, it may be something that goes for a year. They'll, they'll again, ride the wave. they buy something pretty low, and, and you know, the, it either climbs or maybe it spikes. And it may be something very volatile that they're, they're in. It may be a very volatile stock they're in. And they buy this stock hoping that, you know, it shoots through the moon. And when it gets somewhere around the top, they hope you don't know where the top is and where it starts to fall or whatever. But they pick somewhere around the top, and they try to sell that thing right quick. And those are short-term investments, maybe a year, maybe a couple months, maybe a week. And you just have to watch the stock. Those are short-term investors. They're not in it for the long haul. They don't want to keep that stock for the next 10 years. They just want to make a quick buck off of it and go to something else. And then there are people that are doing it for retirement called long-term investments. They take a 10-year portfolio and look at this stock for 10 years. You know, what has it done the last 10 years? And usually these are stocks that are not going to be volatile. They're going to be something that climbs, you know, with the company. As the company grows, the stock grows. Or, you know, they buy out somebody else or whatever. And, and they're usually a lot less volatile and, and a lot more forgiving, I guess. They, they may lose a little. They may gain a little. But it's not going to be real big. It's not going to be real low. You know, oftentimes we treat the Christian life this way. You know, I start going down the road of life, and I'm driving my ship down on the ocean, and everything's going fine. I start to hit a storm. You know, Jesus, come, come get me out of this. As soon as you get me out of this, I'm going to take it back over. That's the way we treat Jesus, like a, a day trader. You know, God, if you can help me out, if you're so good, you can help me out of this situation, and I'll, I'll, I'll believe in you for a little bit, but then I'm going to go back where I was. And then we have people that are, that are short-term investors in God. 
you know, my life starts to fall apart and I really need help and I call the pastor and I call the church and I start to go to church and I start to get counseling and I start to do this and I start to do that and I, and I, I, I go to Bible studies and I start to do some things. And then as soon as everything kind of gets leveled back off, I just kind of drop off. You know, the church is not really that important. And you know, I just, you know, I'll find some excuse or another and I'll just quit coming so much. And, and before long, a couple of years, they're out. There'll be a short term. We treat God that way. But God is looking for long-term investors, somebody that, that you can go to and say that uh, some seasoned Christian I can go to and say, how did you handle this situation? I just lost my job. How do you think you would handle it? And they can say, well, I don't know. I'd never necessarily be in your situation, but I have served God 25 years. And in the 25 years that I've served God, this is what has happened in my life. And I've had this hard time, and I stayed with God, and God brought me through it. I've done this in my life and, and, and went on, and, and I can look back 10 years ago and look back and say, God, I've been on the plus side, amen? But God has, has given me what I needed to go. God has always sustained me. God has always been there. My friend, you and I and all of our churches in America need the stability of people that have walked with God for years. And you can look at their life and see, yeah, they had bad times. Of course they had bad times. But they didn't give up on God. They had times where things didn't make sense. But they didn't give up on God. And they can look back over their life for the past 20 years, and God has been good to them, friend. I've had a lot more good than I have bad. And we don't just jump out as soon as things go bad. See, that's what we do. We do like a, a, a daily investor. Well, this stock is starting to, you know, I'm going to hop out of here and jump off of this. And that's what we do with God. You know, I thought God was supposed to be good. I thought God was supposed to be great. I thought if I accepted Christ, everything would turn around. Everything would go great in my life. That God would bless me. Well, he will. But you got to stay with him. And just because you accept Christ is no guarantee that everything's going to go perfect in your life. We can go to other sides of the world and show you different stories, how people in, in different uh, cultures, when they accepted Christ, they accepted Christ, they got kicked out of their family. When they accepted Christ, they got, you know, their, their life was threatened. They were beaten. They paid an immediate price. My friend, we need those that have wisdom by experience by walking with God for years. Let me go on quickly. The second thing is, their ways have been shaped by the Word of God. Look with me in verse 7. And I, I circled that word a while ago. I mentioned to you uh, the pattern of good works. God is looking for us to have a pattern. And we look back over our lives over the past year, past couple of years, whatever it is. I have a pattern of following God. The Word of God says, I hide the Word of God in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And as I read the Word, as I start to put God's Word in my life, I start to have a pattern in my life I can look at that their ways have been shaped by the Word of God. Good works that follow a life dedicated to God. They are examples of what God can do in a life. Yeah, I might not be rich. You pick a senior saint, somebody that's walked with God for 25 years, and you get their little family. They may not have a huge house, may not have a mansion, may not have a new car when you go talk to them. And in fact, you might have to buy them lunch. Probably you should have. If they're, they're retired, you probably need to buy them lunch. Amen? But they'll be able to explain to you, and I guarantee you, God is taking care of them. It's, it's just, David said, I've never seen God's people beg bread. That doesn't mean you're going to have, everything's going to be great. It doesn't mean you're not going to have some times where things are hard, things are tight. You're going to have those. But I can promise you God is just as faithful or more faithful in those times than he is when everything's going well. And my friend, we need your kind in our church. We need you. Those that are seasoned saints, we need that in our church. Let me give you an example here, and I'll, I'll close real quick. 
I read a story about James Dobson. Everybody knows, probably knows Dr. James Dobson. He's wrote a, a bunch of books about child rearing and all kinds of stuff, marriage, all kinds of stuff. He shared an illustration one time about elephants. You know, he was very fascinated with elephants. They're, they're very emotional and, and uh, they're, they're, very, they're huge and uh, they're, they're very smart. He shared a story about uh, something that was happening in uh, Plainsburg National Park in northwestern South Africa. I know that's a mouthful, but northwestern South Africa. The rangers there were reported young bull elephants in the region have become increasingly violent over the years especially to nearby white rhinos. Without provocation, the elephant would knock over the white rhino and go over to him and kneel down and gore him to death. This was not typical behavior for an elephant. It was very difficult for the people to explain. As you looked at elephants, this isn't the nature of elephants. They're usually not violent at all. But the game wardens, after studying them for years, think they have cracked the code. Apparently, aggressiveness is a byproduct of government programs to reduce elephant populations by killing off the older elephants. All the older males, they, they have been killing them, or poachers have got them because of their tusks. Almost all the young rogues, that were, they were orphaned when they were calves, and they were deprived of adult contact. Under normal circumstances, dominant older bulls would keep the young elephants in line and would serve as role models for them. In the absence of this influence, these juvenile delinquents, as it were, these teenager elephants, were running around. They would grow up to terrorize their neighbors. We see that today, don't we? He goes on to say, I know it's too risky to, it is risky to apply uh, animal behavior too liberally to human beings, but the parallel is too striking to ignore. Let me say one more thing. The absence of uh, elderly super, early supervision and discipline is also often uh, cataclysmic for teenagers and for elephants. When we have churches that, that only have young people, and we want the new way, and all we want stuff is new. Now, I'm not saying we have to do everything like we did 50 years ago. And just because we did it 50 years ago that way, that means it's going to work today. I'm not against new innovation at all, but we need the influence and the grounding and the stability of those that have been saved for a while that will help us that have just been saved be able to grow and to mature and be what we need to be. And it happens in the family. We see it in the family with the absence of the father. We see it in churches with the absence of elders. And when Paul was speaking to Titus here, he says, you need to get some men to set up as elders, some families you can set up as examples and get your young people around these families. Get around them and let them soak up the wisdom of these people that are senior saints because we need their help. And my friend, without it, we have all kinds of stuff that goes on as a byproduct. Let me go on quickly. Let me close with this. They were waiting, waiting and ready for heaven. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things that bothers me about somebody that has a little age on them and they don't want to live for God and I, I may not ask them right out I may ask them right out you know how, many, how much time do you think you have left I'm not trying to be unkind I'm just, just this is just nature this is human nature we only have so many years but when somebody is a senior saint somebody that's been living for God for years for 10, 20, 30 years whatever it is when they get a little age on them they have a very clear view of heaven. I could go around the room this morning, these senior saints that are in here this morning, I know that I could ask some of them, and they're ready to go right now. I mean, they're looking forward to going. 
because the body they have is starting to deteriorate. You know what I mean? It don't feel as good as it used to feel. And they have a real good grip on what it means to go to heaven, that I, I don't have anything left here to live for. I'm living for God, and I'm living for heaven, and I want to go see him. And it gets to the point in your life, if you're a senior saint, that you end up having more people on the other side in heaven than you do here on this side on earth. And it, it propels us to want to go to heaven, to see others go to heaven. And I'm looking for Jesus to come back, and I'm ready for the hope of heaven. And my friend, we see that in senior saints. We can see them and they're ready to go to heaven. They don't care about what's going on in the world. They don't care if your stock goes up or down. They don't care if this happens or that happens. My investment's in heaven. I've lived for God for 25 years, and I'm looking forward to going home and seeing him, amen, and I'm, or whatever the, the year is. And so I, don't have, I had a, a, a lady tell me this week, I know my time is short. And she's right, it is. But the same thing could be applied to all of us, couldn't it? All our time could be short. We don't know that. But those that have been senior saints are living for God, knowing that they have a whole lot more behind them than they have in front of them, and they have a whole lot less time. between. If things go naturally like the natural course of things, it won't be very long. They're going to see Jesus, and my friend, they're going to be ready. And it's an example to us that are younger that we need to get things in right, in line, and be where they are in their spiritual walk because they're ready to meet heaven. I'm not sure I'm ready to go to heaven. But they have things figured out. And they've been there. They've done that. They've seen it. They've bought the pictures. They may not remember it all, but they've done it all. Amen? And they're ready to go to heaven. They're waiting, and they're ready to go to heaven. And we can see the spark in their life and the sparkle in their eye. They're ready to go to heaven. They have more friends on that side than they do on this side. And my friend, it needs to be a reminder to us to live right, to do right. And we need to look up to these other people. Paul said to follow me as I follow Christ. Now, you can't put all your faith in following somebody, and I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow Jesus. But my friend, we can be encouraged by people that are around us. That's why I love having churches. I don't like doing church online. I don't like watching sermons online. I do watch sermons online, but I want to be around where the people are. I want to talk to people. I want to be around the saints of God and encourage each other. And I want the elderly in here absolutely encourage me. In fact, I read some uh, articles uh, coming up to, to this sermon that uh, they said during the pandemic, uh, elderly people are more faithful to the church than the younger people are, even though the elderly people are way in a higher percentage a risk. But yet they're the faithful ones in church. If you go back and look at this church, the, and, and, just, this, and I'm not picking on people that aren't retired, but the people that were retired did most of the work on this church. We need your help. We need your, not necessarily physical help anymore, we need your spiritual help. We want you to encourage those that are young people that come in. You see a young couple come in, go sit with them. Give them what you have. They need what you have. We see that they don't want to be around me. I'm an old fuddy-duddy. I smell funny, and, you know, we do stuff it's, that old people do. And I promise you, friend, they need you. We need you. And may we never forget what God has done for us and given us seasoned saints to be in our churches. Paul is getting this, this course across to Timothy. I know this has been an unusual sermon this morning. But I want, you to, I want to ask you this morning, are you as secure as some of the, the people that I've been around that are senior saints? Are you ready to meet Jesus right now? I mean, you got it nailed down. You're right with God. You don't have to worry about some of the things that distract us in life. Are you really where you need to be with God? It doesn't have to be an old person that passes away. It can be a very young person that passes away. Are you ready to meet God now? Let's bow our heads for prayer. As we bow for prayer this morning, I, I struck, sometimes I do sermons and I'll have 12 pages of notes. Sometimes I do sermons like this one, I'll have a half page of notes. 
and I really wasn't sure what the Lord was going to do with it. A lot of it in study didn't seem to make sense. And God, how does this apply to us today? And how would the 21st century church deal with these things? And, and what do we need that, that Timothy had that, that Paul gave to Timothy through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What are the principles we can apply to us today? My friend, we need each other. We need people that live for God to be the influence they need to be on younger Christians. We need fellowship, we need Bible study, and we need your help. Thank God for you if you're living for God today. And it's not necessarily just age, it's also how long you've been saved. You may be a very young man, but you've been saved for 10 years, 15 years. You have an influence on somebody else around you. We need your help. And God uses those that have walked through thick and through thin with God. I want to ask you this morning, do you know 100% sure if you were to die right now, if God was to call your number per se, I'm not sure that we all have a number, if God even calls it, but if, if your time was up and God called you home, are you ready right now to meet him? You say, Brother Jason, I'm not really sure. Just slip your hand up and slip it back down. I'm not going to come to you. not going to embarrass you. not going to say anything to you. I just want to pray for you. Is that you? Brother Jason, I'm not really sure that I would go to heaven if I were to die right now. Is that you? Thank you for taking time to listen today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with your loved ones. Additionally, you can contact us by using the information provided in this episode's description. We hope that you'll visit us again soon. May God bless you.